So this is like the, the research room um, area where they do the research archives. Or research. Florida A&M University in Tallahassee is home to one of the largest black archives in the United States. Its walls and shelves are filled with art, stories, and history by and about black creators. The collection includes more than 500,000 archival records and more than 5,000 museum artifacts. Some of the items include rare books, African art and masks, and shackles that once held enslaved people. This, this is just one of those rooms that make you say, wow, you know, that um, when you think about history and you think about what people of color endured, um, it's hard to say that it never happened. And you have some people that says it never happened. Timothy A. Barber is the director of the Meek Eaton Black Archives and Museum. I always had, had this model, this, this saying that if you write something in the sands of the beach today, when you come back to the beach tomorrow, it's gone because the waves wash it away. But if you carve something in stone, it will remain there forever. I always ask people, why do you think there's a Mount Rushmore? because they wanted that history of those forefathers to be remembered forever. He sees the white brick walls of the historic Carnegie Library where the archives are housed as their own kind of solid rock, preserving black history so it can be remembered forever. That's important, Parper says, when many would prefer to gloss over pieces of the past. So history belongs to those people that are telling those stories. And how they want those stories to be interpreted years from now is important. So when people say we don't want to hear black history, when people say we don't want to talk about slavery, uh, when people say that we don't want to hear primary source material about the experiences of people of color, that's problematic. Uh, because, you know, people probably would present slavery as being OK, you know, and it, it wasn't OK. Barber started his job as archives director in July of 2022, but this isn't his first time there. He trained at the archives as a student at FAMU and overlapped some of his time with founder James Eton, who established the archives back in 1976. Dr. Eton uh, immediately began to collect things that were discarded, uh, left out on the street. Uh, people really looked at it and had felt that there was no use for it because the history of blacks in America was not regarded as valuable. Eton died in 2004. In 2002, Eton spoke with the nonprofit group The History Makers, which records oral histories told by prominent African Americans. He said part of his goal in creating the archives was to amass source material and documents that would clear the way for authors and historians to detail American history through a black lens. Almost all the major publications on black subjects are done by white people because they get access to the, access to the records. And we don't have them. So what I decided to do, right, I'm going to collect my own records. That's how we, how we got started. During his time at FAMU, Eton found many of his white students and colleagues preferred to ignore the more damning details of the country's past. That ran counter to Eton's belief that, quote, African-American history is the history of America. Here he is again talking with the history makers. How in the world can you talk about the Old South and not talk about the history and contributions of African-Americans? If cotton was king, then the slave was the throne. I always said it. 
If cotton was king, the slave was the throne because everything based what? On the back of the labels supply. They didn't want to believe it. Eton realized making sure the full spectrum of American history would be remembered would require preservation and collection. In short, he and those who followed behind him would need to become the keepers of their own history. I'll never be like you. I'll never conform in everything that I do. I'm far from the norm. And since before I was born, I broke away from the swarm and found myself in the very place I belong. And thank God it didn't take you to get me there because you'd have tried to knock me off before I knew of myself. But I'm a special one, a C-O-G. A king's kid, and by the grace of God, I'm in here today. You can hate me if you want to. I'm your host, Regan McCarthy, and this is the podcast Not So Black and White A Community's Divided History from WFSU Public Media. The first time John Dew saw his future wife, Patricia, she was in Jet Magazine, a popular news source for black readers during the civil rights movement. I decided I don't want to come on down south where people were really involved in the movement. Five months after Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus, two Florida A&M University students followed suit. Wilhelmina Jakes and Carrie Patterson set off a citywide bus boycott. Four years later, Patricia Stevens Dew received national attention when she, along with her sister and a handful of mostly FAMU students, staged the first student-led JLN in the country. In a 2013 interview with WFSU, John Dew explains Patricia believed ordering a piece of cake at a segregated Woolworth lunch counter should never have been a crime. She believed that paying for segregation was inhumane. If she is arrested for a crime which she did not recognize as a crime, so why should she pay pay bail to be released? Because that is paying for an inhumane crime. John was inspired by Patricia and the other students. He wanted to earn a law degree to help aid in the fight for civil rights. So he moved from Indiana to Tallahassee and enrolled at FAMU's law school. By 1963, John and Patricia Stevens Dew were married. Together, they raised three daughters and continued a lifelong fight for civil rights. Years later, the couple sat on a textbook selection committee in Miami-Dade County. We were looking at the history textbook that was proposed. And there was nothing in any of the history textbooks about the history of the civil rights movement in Florida. And Patricia raised the question. And the response was, there is no history because it hasn't been, nobody wrote wrote it. She was told, oh, well, there wasn't a civil rights movement in Florida. And she was like, what? (laughs) Tanana Rivdu is one of John and Patricia's daughters. That was a really eye-opening experience for her, not just to chronicle the stories of people she knew, black and white, who sacrificed sometimes everything, even their lives, for the movement, but so that history wouldn't forget it. She says that experience spurred her mother to begin writing a book on the history of Florida's civil rights movement. 
And it wasn't long before she recruited Tanana Reeve to help. I make the joke that I wrote the book so my mother would stop telling me the stories over and over <laughs> of the civil rights activists she knew from the 60s. But she really was the sort of self-designated griot. And she kept telling us the stories. We kept hearing these names over and over again, uh, like an eyewitness account to a part of history that she actually lived to see a lot of people forget. Janana Reeve is a former Miami Herald journalist turned novelist who writes mostly fiction and horror. The horror in my fiction to me is less frightening and way less stressful than the horror of true life history. And the, the stories she was describing were stories of people being shot at, uh, being jailed, being arrested, in her case, being tear gassed to the point where a police officer threw a tear gas canister in her face when she was just a 20-year-old college student leading a nonviolent march in Tallahassee, by the way, uh, to, in defense of students who had been arrested for uh, sit-ins at lunch counters, trying to desegregate lunch counters. And because the officer recognized her as a leader of the movement. He said, I want you. And he threw the tear gas canister in her face. And as a result of that, for the rest of her life, and she died in her early 70s, she wore dark glasses even indoors 80% of the time. Together, she and her mother wrote the book Freedom in the Family, a mother-daughter memoir of the fight for civil rights. Tanana Reeve has published more than a dozen books, but she sees this one as the most important. So there was this real-life traumatic injury I was always staring at in terms of what my mother had sacrificed for her movement work. And while I had great admiration for it, my parents and my father, that uh, my mother, I should say, my late mother, was Patricia Stevens Do My father, who's still living, is, is Attorney John Do. They were my first real-life superheroes. So if I was going to write about any nonfiction topic, absolutely, it would be them. But I have to give my mother credit. She was the one really, really pushing. Tanana Reeve says those first-person stories are even more important now than ever, especially given the resurgence of overt racism. These are things that would not have surprised her. But this whole fear over what people call critical race theory, which used to puzzle me so much because I teach at a university level, and I've taught my students that critical race theory is something you learn in law school, right? And it's about the interaction of, of the law uh, and politics. And, and it's sort of a complex idea. But I've come to realize that people who are afraid of critical race theory, for them, it just means anything that's critical about race relations. Anything that makes the state look bad. Tanana Reeve says her mother's greatest fear was watching the clock turn back, watching the rights she'd fought for reverse. And Tanana Reeve says it's happening now before our eyes. That's one place where I can see there's a definite difference between who I was when I helped write this book and who I am now. Because after, you know, a couple more decades, it is very clear that my mother was right about that, that the clock is turning back. And I've seen, you know, people in social media uh, sort of wishing that that generation or our generation, the Generation X generation, had had a better understanding of how fragile those gains were. I'm going to speak my mind for a second. 
The world is immersed in a global pandemic. I'm not talking about a virus, it's a little more systemic. History has shown us all the battles we fought. We march, we sing, we dance, and we boycott when we have to fight for our human rights. When we're afraid to walk the streets at night, when we're scared of getting pulled over because we're not white, how will we expect it to just be all right? I'm tired of embracing all these dreams, hypotheticals, people saying quiet, embrace the parentheticals. Equality for all cannot be theoretical, so we'll keep marching on when they tell us to let it go. That's the price we pay, fighting for justice. Some days it's a crowd, other days it is just us, but we keep moving forward, do what we must, and all the while we will have to trust. 58 years after the Federal Civil Rights Act was passed, there's a new front opening in the ongoing battle for civil rights. This is a war of words. I have the honor and privilege of introducing the combatant of critical race theory, a champion for parental rights, and our warrior for Florida. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand to your feet for the best governor in the nation, Governor Ron DeSantis! It's December of 2021, and Governor Ron DeSantis is introducing a new bill he plans to push through the legislative session. He calls it the Stop Woke Act. It codifies a new rule from the State Department of Education that bans discussions about critical race theory in public K-12 schools. And this will do a number of things that are very important. One, it will put into statute uh, the Department of Education's prohibition on CRT in K through 12 schools. No taxpayer dollars should be used to teach our kids to hate our country or to hate each other. During the 2022 legislative session, lawmakers passed the bill. It puts restrictions on how issues of race and history can be discussed in public school classrooms and workplaces. The legislation itself does not directly mention critical race theory, a concept that examines how racism has influenced government policy. But it's clear that was a driving factor in the governor's support of the new law. Throughout committee hearings on the measure, lawmakers, including Democrats Trey McCurdy, Fentress Driscoll, Ramon Alexander, and Patricia Williams, fought back. We as a legislature have told Floridians, you can't protest, you can't pass out water at precincts, You can't play high school sports if you're transgender. Now we're coming to tell you to don't say gay, don't unionize. And in this committee with this bill, we're trying to tell you to don't tell your history. Don't tell your perspective of what you think history is. There's been a narrative this session where we're suppressing stories, suppressing the stories of women and not considering their lives in context when it comes to that 15-week abortion ban, suppressing the stories and lived experiences of our LGBTQ plus youth and families with the Don't Say Gay bill. And now we're suppressing history and the stories and lived experience, particularly of Black people. If all these issues didn't matter, we wouldn't have this bill. If race didn't matter, and this stuff didn't poll well to get people to come out and vote and cause a dadgum insurrection, we wouldn't have these type of bills. One of my colleagues said we are confused about what we are saying. There's no confusion about this. This is disappointing. This is disgusting for the state of Florida. Our history, it happened. And we can't take it back. But try to cover it up to make someone that feels guilty not to feel guilty is disgusting. 
the study of race and racism has always involved language and specifically the public use of language and 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 what does racism sound like, right? What is what is the what is the vernacular of racism? Davis Hauk is a professor of rhetorical studies at Florida State University. He says the language of racism finds its way into political speech, where it's used as a dog whistle to try to influence specific groups. And by dog whistle, this is simply a fancy way of saying only certain people hear it in very particular ways, right? It's 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 a it's a term loaded with meaning that only a certain group is going to hear. Hauk gives the example of then-Governor Ronald Reagan campaigning for president in 1980 in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where only 16 years earlier, three civil rights workers had been murdered in a high-profile case. Reagan told a gathered crowd that he believed in state rights. Hauk says by using that term, Reagan evoked arguments surrounding the Civil War and whether it was a fight to preserve slavery or to protect the rights of individual states. Now, we're not talking about states' rights so much in 2022, but again, the the vocabulary continues to evolve. What repeatedly struck Black lawmakers was the language itself, clearly aimed at tamping down discussions of issues associated with the nation's record of enslavement and civil rights because of concerns white people might feel uncomfortable. Who doesn't want to be awake? DeSantis's effort to turn a word prevalent in Black vernacular, the word woke, into a weapon was a pointed shot and won Black lawmakers, local officials, and Black academics, like Tallahassee Community College history professor Andrea Oliver, heard loud and clear. I mean, what does that word uh, really mean in its non-vernacular, in the non-vernacular sense? It means to be enlightened. It means to be tolerant. It means to be aware. Who doesn't want to be those things? So like, call me woke. Yeah, I I absolutely am. Because what's the alternative? What is the opposite of woke? Sleep? Okay, so you'd rather me be sleep? And so, again, we have to question the the authorities and the powers that be. Why? Why does that threaten you? Oliver posits the reason some would rather keep parts of the past hidden is because those pieces don't follow the standard narrative most people learn in school. Why does the true knowledge, the full knowledge of this country's history threaten you? Are you threatened because you, you, you may learn, or more importantly, your young people may learn about Bacon's Rebellion of 1676, which set in place the racial framework around which we have operated as a country ever since? Bacon's Rebellion was an uprising of Black and white indentured servants and Black enslaved people led by landowner Nathaniel Bacon in the English colony of Jamestown. Bacon was upset by what he saw as unfair practices and poor land distribution by the colonial government. Ultimately, the rebellion was unsuccessful, but the possibility of indentured servants and enslaved people banding together raised alarms for wealthy plantation owners. The uprising resulted in the end of indentured servitude policies and an increase in the slave trade, setting the wheels in motion for institutionalized racism to take hold in what would become the United States. 
We got brothers and sisters getting locked up in jail, fighting for better days and they can't make bail, willing to get locked up so that we can be free, because it's the vision that them and Dr. King all see, that we work together, pray together, struggle together, go to jail together so that we can be free together. Doesn't matter if it's tomorrow or forever, we will find our pen and we will write our letter. Come on. We must believe. As we fight on that victory and justice can be won. The term woke, which DeSantis appropriates for the bill's title, has deep roots in black music and language. Huddy Ledbetter, also known as the musician Lead Belly, used the term in 1938 while talking about his song Scottsboro Boys. He warned listeners to be aware of the racial violence spreading throughout the South. I advise everybody to be a little careful when they go along through that, but stay woke, keep the eyes open. Erica Badu and Georgia Ann Muldrow brought the term into the 21st century with the song Master Teacher. The idea of staying woke became tied more directly to the Black Lives Matter movement following the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. In 2017, the word had become so mainstream, Merriam-Webster updated its entry in the dictionary to reflect the usage change, defining the term as being aware of and actively attentive to important facts and issues, especially issues of racial and social justice. But in the years that have followed, woke has been weaponized against the people who coined it. Nicole Patenteri is the director of the Florida Center for Reading Research at Florida State University. She says this isn't the first time a word from Black creators has been turned against them, and it won't be the last. We have a long history of that in this country. Um, in many ways, with many things, language being the least of it. Um, but really, it's, it's, these are just dog whistle terms that are being politicized um, to rile up a certain segment of our population to believe certain things and and act in certain ways that just simply are not true. Pat and Terry says there's a rich history of creative language use in Black English. It stems from the need for survival. Enslaved people used coded speech to communicate messages they didn't want their owners to hear or understand. Language became a tool that was used to hold on to family histories and traditions to um, survive and engage in really harsh environments to um, as, a, as a roadmap and a way to literally to freedom, to move towards freedom. Um, and, and having to use language in a tool as a tool in that way very likely prompted our um, many black people to be extremely creative with language in many ways because you had to. Um, and, and to some degree, that's still true to this day. Um, I think about Jay-Z. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. And many other very successful rap and hip-hop artists who use language quite, 
quite creatively in ways to make a living, um, to survive what were also quite harsh conditions that oftentimes were not of their doing. Um, so that, and now they've taken a language and use it as a tool that has become such an art form um, in ways that have literally changed the world. From standing on the corners bopping to driving some of the hottest cars New York has ever seen for dropping some of the hottest verses rappers ever heard. We have had a tendency to use that piece of who black people are in ways that are negative, um, in ways that actually promote other people, but not us, <laughs> um, in ways that can be harmful and damaging. And how can we just stop it? Can we just cut that out? Um, and I think the real answer to that question has to do with whether or not we're ever going to get over this racism thing. Pat and Terry thinks it's necessary for all parts of American history to be remembered so society can understand what drives the way Black people are treated today. It's not like we're out here having a slavery party and just want to talk about it all day because it was so much fun. But these, the, the heart, we want to talk about the, the celebration just as much as we want to talk about the things that were horrible because they matter. So, so yeah, I think, I, I, I think it's very important for us to make sure that we continue to understand our past so that it can inform our future. Tanana Reeve-Dill. I would just caution anyone out there, you know, who's listening to this and who does feel uncomfortable about racial history, who does wish, why can't we just forget about all that and let that go away? I would love if we could forget about all that and let it go, but we can't. Do says we can't forget about what happened in the past because it's directly influencing what's happening now. She says systemic racism that has deep roots in our country's history continues to control how Black people are viewed in all aspects of everyday life. We can't just forget about the history because the history is playing out every day when we're looking for real estate, when we're trying to get bank loans, when we're, our children are suspended at higher percentages at school than their white counterparts. All of this has roots in history, and much of it is fear. Fear of reprisal, I think, is number one. Uh, fear of being outbred is becoming literally a part of our national conversation in a way that it it should have been before. But now, as the, as people, the kids say that the text is the subtext is now the text. It's starting to pop out that there's this fear of being outbred. Um, history is just so 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 vital in order to understand the world we're living in. And also in coming up with solutions so that we can all march peacefully toward a future. For Du, remembering history is essential. But she says that doesn't only mean looking back. Yes, you need history hand in hand, but history is not just supposed to be, oh, this was terrible. I feel so guilty. I feel so bad. We have to do more with the past then say we feel guilty or we just feel bad about what happened. How do we take that knowledge of the past and roll it into creating a better future because of the lessons we've learned from it? She says that's what her area of study, Afrofuturism, lets her do. It's, a, it's really about art and fiction. It's about, it's the science fiction, fantasy, horror, you know, that's my thing. Comics like Black Panther of the African diaspora, which often helps us sort of envision ourselves in a future, right? So be, before you can move towards something, you have to imagine it. 
And Afrofuturism both helps you imagine that future that you are not just sort of a background player in, but maybe one of the leaders in, while also trying to reconcile aspects of the past. But who will do that work? Keep the stories of the past while visioning a way forward for the future? Who is imagining themselves as one of the leaders? What we are experiencing from my assessment is another, uh, another evolutionary point. And it's going to be hard. And it's going to be painful. But I think it's time for our generation of leaders to stand up. Reginald Ellis is an historian and assistant dean for the School of Graduate Studies, Research, and Continuing Education at Florida A&M University. We talk about King as though King is still here. Right? We talk about Fannie Lou Hamer as though Fannie Lou Hamer is still here. Eventually, my daughter should be talking about someone of my generation. Uh, she's only four years old, so hopefully when she's 40, we still won't be talking about when King, what King would have said, we'll be talking about something or someone of this generation, what they did, what they would have said to help change the shape of what this nation will be for her children. Ellis says he looks forward to learning who those next civil rights leaders will be. Do says it could be any of us. I think if there was one last message uh, I would impart to the listeners, it's that, you know, all of us feel small. All of us feel powerless, but all it took was one meeting for my mother and her sister to help start a movement in the city of Tallahassee. And the same thing can be true of all of us, whether it's a movement on the streets, a movement in social media, a movement in the schools. We do have the power to create change if we just believe in ourselves. You've been listening to the podcast, Not So Black and White, A Community's Divided History from WFSU Public Media. I'm Regan McCarthy. 